0: And my day would start, you know, early in the morning, um, wake, wake up, get out of bed with a hangover, like every day. (laughs) Right. And then as soon as I was in the car, I have about a half an hour commute to the office or did at the time. And, um, I would be in the car, I would, you know, fill my coffee cup up with vodka and, you know, halfway there that was gone and I'd refill it. So it's, it began early in the morning, uh, then by lunchtime. I would be leaving the office to go to a lunch with a client or with other people we worked with where there was almost always drinking. And so I just lived in that state almost 100% of my waking hours.
1: Welcome to Goodbye to Alcohol, a podcast from World Without Wine. Whether you want to say goodbye to alcohol, have already said goodbye to alcohol, or whether you're just sober curious, this is the podcast for you. We've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life hello hello and welcome to the goodbye to alcohol podcast my name is janet goron i'm the founder of world without wine and i'm your host for this podcast thank you so much for tuning in we believe it's really really hard to change your drinking alone so world without wine we're all about community we're about keeping each other on track. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. Here's a lady from one of our WhatsApp groups.
2: Good morning, tribe members. Um, My Friday win is dedicated to Caroline van den Heerfer, who um, inspired me when she came on a zoom cafe a while back to say that she'd reached 75 days and at that point I was at the beginning of my journey and um I just thought my god how do you get to 75 days it just seems like such a impossible target anyway here I am um and what's amazed me is it's become so much easier than I thought it would be um in fact um for some reason the thought of wine makes me feel actually turns my stomach a little bit I opened a bottle of wine two nights ago to add a half a cup to a meal I was making, um, a chicken dish I was making and I smelt it and it actually made me feel kind of nauseated and all I could think about was the headache that I would get if I drank any of it so um, yeah So I'm not even having any cravings or any regrets or any kind of difficult moments at the moment i'm not saying it won't last forever but um but i'm in a pretty good headspace at the moment with regards to picking up that next glass i just don't want to so um yeah so thank you caroline for being my inspiration and um thank you to the tribe of course the wonderful people on this group who are so inspirational and to janet um, and sue and lynette and lucy and yeah all you wonderful people um, yeah so that's my friday one lots of love bye so if
1: you want to join our community and get a bit of support just go to worldwithoutwine.com and click on the memberships tab so let's get to my guest today i'm interviewing michael gallagher he's an author a speaker and a coach I've just finished reading his fascinating book, which is called Waking Up, A Guide for Transformation. In the book, Michael talks about his very unusual childhood. So I started our conversation by asking him about that. So good morning, Michael. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I've just finished your book, which was a real page turner. And uh, I wondered if you'd start the uh, our conversation off by setting the scene. Just talk to us about your your childhood, because it was extremely unusual.
0: Thank you for the question. And first, I'd like to start by saying thank you very much for having me on and talking with me today. A little while after I was born, my mother came in contact with a high mind control group. Um, Today, I choose to call it a cult, uh, known as Jehovah's Witnesses. You may be familiar with them. Um, And they hit all eight of the criteria of what cult belief systems uh, are. And so that was an unusual experience as we grew up. But then on the other side of that, uh, my father, who was not a witness or not one of Jehovah's Witnesses at the time, uh, was a career criminal. So we saw really two uh, very far ends of the spectrum: with my father living, a, uh, you know, a criminal life, and then my mother, who was uh, ultra religious to the point of you know mind control and. So it's hard to choose in that environment, you know, which direction to go, you know, what, what is your path? What is the, um, and also on top of that, you don't get a lot of choice when you're living in a mind controlling environment or in a, you know, high mind control group, there's a lot of brainwashing that goes on or so those things I think made it unusual. I had three older brothers, um, all of, uh, which were in the same situation as I was. You know, dealing dealing with on the one hand uh, our mom's religion, and on the other hand our father's criminal lifestyle. Uh, he was uh, kind of a dichotomy, though. My father was, and I, I talk about this in the book, <clears throat> excuse me, because on the on one side of it, we would hear stories about him from his associates uh, of how violent he was, the you know the kind of life he was living. We didn't hear stories from him. He kept that away from our home. But we'd hear very violent stories about, you know, someone that owed him money. And so the things he did to them, uh, heard several people that had been shot by him, things like that. And then on the other side, when he was home and when he was with us, he was one of the most loving, kind men that I'd ever known or that anyone would be around. So it was a real dichotomy of who, who was this person. And then as I grew up, that was a struggle who do you choose as your hero is it the person you've heard about that you know is out uh and after he died uh, we heard an awfully lot more about some of the things he did um i think there were about 15 banks he had robbed uh 20 or 30 um drug stores things like that so that was his life for many years um he was eventually when i was eight years old he was shot uh in in an armed robbery in the head uh did live through that and then he went to prison um, after he uh, recuperated from that in the hospital. So then we spent, I think, the next nine years uh, in, you know, going to see him, visiting him. Um, so seeing the things inside of a maximum security prison in the United States that uh, kids shouldn't really be exposed to. I mean, nobody should be, but it definitely uh, you see a different side of life at an early age that way. And I write about some of that in the book, some of the experiences around that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. As, as you say, for a child to, to, to be on this spectrum, you know, the religion one end and the <laughs> criminality the other, it must be so confusing. And uh, I wanted to ask you actually about the early years of your parents' marriage. I mean, did did your mum kind of turn to um, this cult, as you call it, for refuge from the uh, hectic life she was living with your dad as he got more involved?
0: You know, that's a, a really good question. Um, because what I saw and what I heard about from folks, uh, you know, in their marriage, there was obviously a lot of dysfunction. I mean, any, anytime, uh, there's that kind of a lifestyle on either side, there's going to be dysfunction. So the reason that they lived the lives they lived. But what I saw were two people that loved one another very much. Um, They, they led very different lives. Um, But I think their history and their background, my father was, you know, grew up in an extremely abusive environment um, with 12 brothers and sisters in absolute poverty. My mother, a very similar situation, Um, not as physically abusive as his. But what I really saw were two people trying really hard to do the best they could. Um, you know, they were in that that's a conclusion that as an adult is sometimes difficult to come to. In that um, I think as children and <clears throat> when you're dealing with addiction and uh alcoholism that I talk about in the book, we have black and white thinking a lot of times. And yeah. so starting to see people for those shades of gray that they really are, where there's good there, there are things that they're doing that are not good. Um that that's a growing up experience i think and something i had to do
1: you're listening to goodbye to alcohol a podcast from world without wine so let's let's come back to you michael so you got married at a very tender age age 18 and you married connie who is also a witness and uh, it seems from the book that you had uh, a rather happy first few years together but it all started kind of falling apart, and you you attribute that to the traumas of your your respective upbringings, and in your case, it was alcoholism and addiction. I think in Connie's case, it was more eating disorders. So I just wondered how these troubles kind of sat with the witness community. Did did you get any compassion, support, or were you on your own? And how did how did that all work out?
0: Um, you know that that's a a really good question because it really points to the center of what the organization is like Um, there there's compassion or care as long as you're towing the line and following the rules outside of that it ends and I don't like to blame the individuals you know I was uh, shortly after I started dealing with um, addiction and alcoholism Um, and, uh, PTSD symptoms, I was, uh, disfellowshipped from the church or excommunicated, shunned so that my family that were, um, witnesses still, my mom, my brothers, uh, they stopped all contact with me. That's really where my, uh, thinking processes started to question a little bit. Okay. Is this right? So that caring or compassion is present in the community as long as you're doing what they want you to.
1: I thought that that would be the answer, but I just, just have to ask.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I hate, I really hesitate to put that on all of the individuals because I think the individuals are largely victims. You know, they're victims of mind control. And so they're doing what they think is right. They're told like with the shunning uh, they're told that it's the kind, loving thing to do, that it will shock someone back to their senses and, That they'll end up back in the fold because their belief system is that any day Armageddon is going to happen. And anyone that's not a witness is going to die by God's hand and not live beyond that. So, you know, with that core or that foundational belief, it's pretty easy to say, okay, we really need to shock this person. We really need to, you know, bring him back into the fold or her back into the fold. Yet at the same time, the organization uh, shuns or disfellowships 70,000 people every year. So It's a a huge number, tears apart families.
1: So there you were, Michael. In your early 20s, you were shunned. (laughs) So I'm sure that uh, escalated your drinking. You were taking drugs. You were clubbing. I mean, were you having fun or were you just trying to numb the pain or a bit of both?
0: I think it's probably a bit of both. Um, It's one of the things that when is very difficult as an addict or an alcoholic coming from that kind of a background where you believe there's nothing other than that religion as truth. And I'm going to die tomorrow anyway at Armageddon because I carried that belief out of it. Yet I couldn't live that way emotionally, mentally. I just couldn't live under the pressure of how they want you to live. There's really no limit to the behaviors you're going to do. If you really truly believe you're going to die tomorrow, and you don't have a good moral compass anyway because of the way you've been raised, there's no limit to the self-numbing behaviors you're going to follow. And I think also along that line, one thing that I did that I I think a lot of addicts and alcoholics do um, is I really mistook pleasure for happiness.
1: Yes. I I, I noticed that comment uh, in the book. I thought it was, uh, it was quite profound, and I know exactly what you mean. And I feel, you know, these days that I'm six years sober – I, I do feel very content, but it's a kind of level feeling of of happiness, you know, but it's but what I've sacrificed, if that's the right word, <laughs> is is big peaks, you know, of right. uh, pleasure. But it's it's like a chemical high, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And that's what all drugs do for us. So it's um, you know, it's as you say, it's you mistook, um say it again, you mistook pleasure for happiness. Yeah.
0: If you um study uh any of the eastern philosophies like buddhism in particular Mm -hmm. talks about the middle way and i think that's kind of what um i describe it as is i was always running towards something chasing something with drugs alcohol whatever it was or running away from something else i was you know really uh attracted to one thing and really repelled by another all the time and there was never that middle way of dealing with life Right, it was always those peaks that you're talking about, but also the valleys that go with that.
1: So let's. So I guess you you're in your early twenties now, and did your your drinking, drugging, and clubbing um, lead to your divorce? Because you you got divorced um, from Connie, didn't you? Did that kind of drive you apart?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it, yeah. there was a lot of pressure, you know, on her as well. Um, she did leave the church um, shortly after I did. Uh, on her own, but that that lifestyle, one in the religion, to the lifestyle I was living as an addict and an alcoholic, um, it, it is extremely difficult to make a marriage last. And then there are a bunch of other pressures on that. You know, add to the early age we got married. You know, we had a child right towards yes. the end of our marriage. We had a child yeah. who, um, luckily, uh, I will say. Um, has done very well. We've both raised her, and uh, she it turns eighteen actually in just a couple of days. So, oh. and she's doing very well.
1: Okay, and then you you met somebody else that you're still married to. Is it Ma- Michaela her name Michelle? Michelle, sorry. So you met Michelle, and you were very happy with her, and you were you created a blended family, as you called it. I think you've got four daughters now, haven't you, read? Correct. Yeah. And um, so that, and and then you started building a career, a sales career. So that that all sounds pretty functional. Yet uh, there's a, an amazing passage in the book where you describe a day where you were kind of drinking vodka throughout the day, really. So describe that day for us.
0: I think that I'm. I think I'm a typical person in a lot of ways in functioning through alcoholism in a career. Um, I found ways. I found one. I found a career that just worked with it, right? In sales, it was, uh, you know, we we were always taking customers out for happy hours, like we call them, Um, lunchtime drinks. You know, just everything in our business with customers and even other uh, people that we work with revolved around that lifestyle. So it really, it helped, it helped that grow in that it was, I was a functional alcoholic, if that makes sense. I, that part of my life just continued to to progress and I did very well in my career, but inside it was very empty. Um, that, that sort of day you're talking about as towards the end, I think I, in the book, I think I describe a day towards the end before I finally got sober. And my day would start, you know, early in the morning, um, wake, wake up, get out of bed with a hangover, like every day. (laughs) Right. And then as soon as I was in the car, I have about a half an hour commute to the office or did at the time. And um, as soon as I would be in the car, I would, you know, fill my coffee cup up with vodka and, you know, halfway there that was gone and I'd refill it. So it's, it began early in the morning. uh, Then by lunchtime. I would be leaving the office to go to a lunch with a client or with other people we worked with where there was almost always drinking. And so I just lived in that state almost 100% of my waking hours.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the functioning alcoholic thing is so – um, so common, isn't it? I mean, people talk about alcoholics and they, they almost expect it to be a homeless man in the park. You know, clutching his, his bottle, but it's it's not. It's people like you and people like me. And, and these days I, I think of alcoholism as a spectrum. You know, at one end we've got the alcoholic in the park, homeless. The other end we've got someone that never drinks. And then there's millions of us in between, aren't there? And it's a really slippery slope. And it sounds like you were holding it together extremely well and again, doing lots of good deals as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, at at least in my work life, it doesn't, it takes its toll on a home life for sure and on families. Um, But that's one of the things I talk about and I've been very open about today um, because in in my career, the industry I was in, but I don't think it's just the industry I was in. I think it crosses an awful lot of boundaries. Um, We had this expression, work hard and play hard. Yeah, and when you translate that, what it means is we're going to work hard. We're going to make a lot of money. We're going to make a lot of money for the people we work with, and then play hard. If you translate that, what it means is uh, we're going to go out and we're going to get hammered. <laughs> you know, we're we're going to happy hours, weekends, and that's how we let off. You know, that's how we let off steam. That's how we dealt with stress and anxiety.
1: And, and in many careers, I mean, I was in human resources, for goodness sake, but in every career almost, if you announce that you've stopped drinking, you, you're really treated as uh, just a little bit strange. And it's, well, you know, what what's your problem?
0: Right. There's definitely a stigma that goes with yeah. it. But I, that's, and that's one of the things I speak about quite a lot now um, is we need to, as companies and as business managers, that part of it, alcohol, I don't, I'm not one that tells everyone you should stop drinking. This is an evil, it doesn't, it doesn't work. And it's not the truth for a lot of people, you know, Mm -hmm. that it's, that it's bad. But what we need to be doing as business owners, managers, directors is offering some other ways, some additional tools for uh, stress reduction, for dealing with things that are in the office for emotional well-being, And we haven't done a good job with that.
1: You're listening to Goodbye to Alcohol, a podcast from World Without Wine. If you'd like to join our tribe, please check out our website, worldwithoutwine.com. No, no. Because we we've all become brainwashed, haven't we, into thinking that we need a drink to relax, and that you know we've worked hard all day. Of course, at the end of the day, we've got to open a bottle of wine. So it's yeah, as you say, we've got to find other ways. And, uh, and when when I'm working with people and helping them, that's that's the first thing we do. So we, I mean, in my example, rather than opening a bottle of wine at six o'clock every evening, I just used to go out for a run for an hour, listening to music. And and once you've done that every night for a couple of months it's it's a new pattern and it it changes everything so um, yeah I agree I think we need lots more education in in companies people need to realize uh, i mean i'm not for prohibition or anything like that but i think people need to realize the dangers of alcohol and certainly when i was drinking heavily i had no idea for example that it was linked to seven different types of cancer and i got breast cancer which i probably wouldn't have done if i'd known just how much you know a bottle of wine a night at least was was hurting me so I think we need more education. And, and it always, I always um, relate it to cigarettes. Uh, you might not be old enough to remember like I can, but I remember adverts with doctors you know, in white coats saying, oh, this brand is you know, <laughs> really good. And then what changed everything was they banned uh, cigarette advertising in the media. So then suddenly we were told what cigarettes really do to us because the publications weren't dependent on that income. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, the media takes a lot of money from the liquor industry. So um, they're, they're actually um, a bit straight-jacketed in, in what they can see. So, yeah, there's a lot of education to to be done and uh, and around, you know, how else can, can people relax? And it, it can be work hard and play hard, but the play doesn't always have to involve alcohol. I think that's it, isn't it?
0: Right. Yeah. And I think that it, it is, um, you know, in, in the... United States, and I'm sure it's this way, many other places, but the United States, uh, businesses drive so much of our change, right? Capitalism drives our change. And so that's why what I do now is in speaking with business owners, uh, offering them programs to, to move away from that, uh, mindset, or at the very least, let's give some tools to our employees that, uh, are different than just alcohol, because when we can involve, and we can show, um, the business bottom line changes in productivity and, you know, yes. re- and employee satisfaction. And I think especially now in the last seven, eight years, we've seen a shift in um, there's a big emphasis on employee satisfaction yes. within companies. Right. So if we want uh, an active workforce, if we want a workforce that is engaged with the company mm-hmm. <clears throat> that wants to stay there and is satisfied, then we need to be offering them some different things that we weren't 10, 15, 20 years ago.
1: Absolutely, and in your programs, Michael, working with business leaders, what kind of tools do you recommend?
0: Um, So we offer um, one program right now, and I'll just talk about it in particular, is called Mindset of Prosperity. And it's an eight week up to six month uh, coaching engagement, where we teach mindfulness practices or meditation practices uh, to the employees as a, a route of stress reduction. And I think right now, especially in the time of COVID, that's especially important. I mean, here in the States, we've seen uh, alcohol sales uh, 200% above what is normal this year in 2020. So I really think we're going to see a lot of um, the after effects of this when we're finally past COVID. I think we're going to see an awfully lot of people that need some help.
1: Yeah, well, the the meditation. Um, I mean, the the research coming out these days in favor of meditation is is huge. You know, I think there's a a great need for. For, you know we we should start in fact we we work here in South Africa with um, an organization that helps children to uh, learn yoga and meditation and it's absolutely beautiful, you know, and these are very poor children and they have nothing and they, and they come from violent families. yet they you know they bring them into a safe space and they meditate and they do yoga. And uh, I, I was at one of the classes once, and this little boy said to me, um, when, when I'm in this class, it's the only time that I dare to close my eyes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've never forgotten that. Yeah. And, you know, it's huge, I think. So well done, you, for getting the meditation word out there. It's It's very popular here in South Africa as well.
0: Yeah, and when you so, look at this, the science behind it, you know, it, it yeah. takes, it's an easy Google search. Anyone can look it up. But um, in 1979, and you're probably familiar with this, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who's a PhD uh, at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, uh, began a study uh, around mindfulness and its use in stress reduction. And he set up a program uh, called MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. It's an eight-week engagement uh, there have been hundreds of studies and it's across the states now, almost every major medical center across the states uses this in some form or another because of what it does physically, emotionally, mentally. So it's uh, the sci- there's a lot of science behind it as well. Not, it's yeah, not just I when I used to think of meditation, and I always like to use this example. I thought of one of two things. I thought of a guy in a diaper sitting on a mountain, a hippie on his mom's couch smoking pot. You know those two things those were the two pictures in my head, but it it's a lot different than that,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I did that program the m s b o when I was recovering from cancer actually mm. it helped helped me it's tremendously. Wonderful. Uh, let's let's go back to your life story because it's so intriguing. Where were we? <laughs> we were at the vodka stage, and your your family, the uh, um, the ever patient Michelle, stuck beside you. But eventually, you decided to check into rehab. I think you said it was the third time, mm-hmm. and you had a a crazy detox there, didn't you? It's um, sounds very frightening. <laughs> Talk to us about your detox and how you came out the other side.
0: Sure. Um, so I went to, uh, at at the time, at this point because of, and we haven't talked a whole lot other than just kind of referenced the, the cult and kind of their belief systems. Um, but I carried a lot of those beliefs into my early adulthood and then started making a shift of, you know, okay, I don't completely believe this, but I didn't have anything to replace it with. So I kind of went to the opposite end of the spectrum and I'm setting up just to answer your question, just so you know, um, to where I would have, uh, called myself an atheist. Um, so I was looking for some kind of a program that I, where I could go and detox and treatment program that wasn't pushing the idea of God where, you know, 12 step programs, that's a a higher power is a big part of it. And so I found this place. Uh, I was told that there was no religious aspect to it. There was no, and, and so anyway, long story short, I checked myself in, It, it was supposed to be medically based. Um, and it turns out it was a fundamentalist group that had kind of taken over the leadership of <laughs> this, or this treatment facility. So, um, there you do few- pick
1: some, don't you, Michael?
0: <laughs> I, I'm pretty good at it, yeah. <laughs> or bad at it, depending on your point of view. I'm an optimist, so I say I'm good at it. <laughs> um, so... The, you know, the continuous teaching in this place over the first couple of weeks were, you know, it was about the power of the Holy Spirit and the devil and, you know, which was just uh, just pinging uh, a lot of the PTSD symptoms that I personally had. We were taught, you know, the devil and demons is very real, you know, as real as you can get that we're going to attack us if we disobeyed. And even though I wasn't carrying those beliefs anymore, the, when you're dealing with uh, trauma, Anytime you start, you know, it's kind of like picking a scab it's there. And that's what was going on with me. So I wasn't sleeping for the first two weeks I was there. I wasn't sleeping maybe an hour a night. And so I got, uh, I became suicidal and I'm open about this now because I think people need to hear it, um, to know they're not alone. I became suicidal. Um, but the night where everything changed for me, I had decided I was done. I couldn't, it wasn't that I wanted to be dead, but I was without hope. And I couldn't imagine going on with this kind of pain anymore. Um, and I, I got it, I got into a hot shower. I had stolen a knife uh, from the kitchen and had made the decision I was, I was going to end my life. And I broke down in the shower and, um, I cried for probably over an hour just sitting in the shower and thinking of, and I, I detail a lot of this in the book. Um, and kind of in a daze, I, I left the shower and uh, I got dressed and I, I walked outside. There was a, an area outside where we could go and out into a field and sat on a picnic table. And I just, I begged for help to, you know, and I don't, even today, I don't know whether to call it, you know, the universe, God, whatever it is, you know, the, but, um, and then I, I began and I had been meditating some before that. And began a began a um, form of mantra meditation, and I just became very calm and very still uh, by doing that. At that point, whether that was some kind of a psychic shift in my in my brain, you know, just some change functionally, whether it was a religious experience, whether I don't know, and I don't I don't try to put a definition on it because I don't know, and I don't think we can always know everything. But something shifted in me that night where. I became calm and I could, I, I believe there's something that connects all of us, some energy that connects each of us in, in this world. And that's since that time, uh, I haven't had a desire to drink or to use drugs and my life has continuously gotten better.
1: You're listening to Goodbye to Alcohol, a podcast from World Without Wine. That's beautiful. So you—you you were a different person when you walked out of that place. I think
0: that most of the people that know me would describe me as a—you know—almost a different human today than I, I was then.
1: For, uh, from the book, it's quite obvious that you—you um, you feel that happiness comes in us living a life that's congruent with our values, and I very much agree with you on that. So, um, can you elaborate on that point a little bit?
0: I base a lot of that on what I've read and also just my personal experience. Um, for many years, I didn't know what my own core values were. Right. And so I lived in a very haphazard reactive manner to life coming at me from any direction. I would react to that because I, I didn't, I didn't know what I was basing things on. What were my core values? Um, if you don't know your values and belief, uh, sometimes you base your actions on other people's values. That's a second way it happens, I think. Um, And I did that with my mother's religion. You know, their values were, you know, completely different than what my own beliefs and values are today. Um, Sometimes uh, people know what their values are, but they don't act. You know, and that brings unhappiness because you know you're not living up to your truth. But I think when we know what our values are, our core values, and then we do what we can to live... Uh, Congruent with those values, you know, in line with those values, it makes a big difference in our level of happiness and satisfaction. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely, yes. It it even applies to, to, well, especially applies to your job. You know, if you're working in a company and you don't believe in what the company is doing, then you you just won't feel good. So, it's it's hugely important, and you've got a nice exercise in your book to help people find their values. But if there's anyone listening to this that thinks um, I'm not sure what these guys are talking about, what values? How, how can they discover their values?
0: Yeah, what are the things that drive us to to do whatever we do? What you know, personally, I think of creativity as a value that's very important to me. Loyalty is very important to me. know, um, and our values shift over time, right? But there are dozens of different uh, tests you can take or exercises you can do to really understand and define what your values are. And then I think understanding where you are, what you value, how it drives your activities and your actions is a really good starting point to change, word of transformation because if we don't know first of all if we don't know what's driving us we have absolutely no chance of change taking hold and and really making a transformation once we understand it what what it is that's driving us we can either shift our values or we can start living you know in alignment with those And so I think those, it's really a foundational quality or a foundational exercise to do when you're talking about transforming your life. If you're dealing with alcoholism, addiction, or any other really anything else that you want to change, I think that really is important.
1: Uh, so let, let's get right up to date now, uh, Michael. So you've got an amazing backstory there. You're going to inspire so many people. So, so tell us what's happening. How is your life these days?
0: Thanks for the question. Um, I think that it's like a lot of people right now. It's a, it's a little bit uh, more limited than it was this time last year. You know, we're um, staying in a lot more as far as uh, we're doing a lot of things via Zoom um, for business. Uh, but currently right now I'm promoting the book. I'm doing a lot of podcasts like your own. Uh, that's a very enjoyable thing. I live with uh, three of my children are still at home. Um, so, you know, fatherhood and, you know, family life is a big part of our life. But then on a professional note, um, we're we're really promoting uh, mindful well-being within a company structure, you know, helping other companies develop their own mindfulness practices And when we look at some of our Fortune 500 companies, uh, what they've done around that and how it's helped their company, it's incredible. You know, Nike, Google, Ford. um, One that was really shocking to me was the U.S. Marine Corps uses a mindful mindful well-being practice. So that's what we're taking to the market now and and trying to help people that way.
1: Yeah, well, I think case studies like that will be so powerful. You know, if you can say, well, this is what Google are doing and this is how it's helped their employee, people are going to really sit up and listen. They won't see it as something alternative and uh, and woo-woo. Right. (laughs) They'll realize how important it is.
0: Not so granola. Is that the
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So uh, you do mention you've just mentioned it now, and you you talk a little bit about COVID and fear, don't you, in in your book? And where I think we're all the whole world is there at the moment. So any last kind of comments on on how we can cope with it all? I know some people are really suffering.
0: Yeah, um, I think for myself, I, I go back to the idea of um, commonality because it helps me just trying to remember. The, the situations like this can be divisive, that we can start feeling very alone. And when we put it in perspective, we're all dealing with this and we're, even if we're in different homes, we're all dealing with it together. And when we don't feel so alone, I think that was one of the big things that, uh, uh came out of Viktor Frankl's book. If you've read that, you know, of course, when we don't feel alone, when we feel like we're a part of a community, it makes a big difference. And then just remembering that this isn't going to last forever. You know, there's an end to it. There's an end. There's a beginning and an end to everything around us, and and that is going. This is going to end. We don't know when, but it is going to end.
1: So before before we say goodbye, Michael, anything else that you'd like to add? Let's let's talk about your book. Uh, people, I've I read it on Kindle because I'm here in South Africa. Where where can people get your book?
0: Yeah. So the Kindle or um, in. In the markets where it's available in paperback, you can get off of Amazon, Amazon.com, Amazon.uk, or you know whatever country that you're using um, is available there. You can go to my website, WakingUpTheBook.com. Um, probably that that may be the easiest way to find it on Amazon, um, or jot down the title, "Waking Up: A Guide for Transformation." uh, there's, I don't know, half a dozen books with waking up in the title. So <laughs> if you put the whole title in or my name, Michael J. Gallagher, you can find it.
1: And and your corporate work, um, uh, people find that on your website as well, do they?
0: They can. Yeah. Just michaelgallagherspeaks.com yeah. speaks.com. And, um, we're doing an awful lot of this. It doesn't matter where you're at in the world. We're doing a lot of things uh, remotely now. And what a, what a cool thing for the market. I mean, when we try to look at the positive things that come out of yeah, the negative things, yeah. Like
1: yeah, I mean, our, we uh, we run workshops. We've we've run about fifty workshops. We've been doing this for five years now. You know, to help people. um, moderate or quit drinking and there were always physical workshops so they would be we'd run them in cape town where i live in Joburg and in london where i'm from and you know we would always get plenty of people but now i do them on zoom and we get people from all over the world so it's it's helped us to become international Okay, well, I wish you all the best with your, your book and your speaking. And, and I love the work you're doing in corporates. You know, as a ex-HR director, I certainly would have hired you. <laughs> Good. No, yeah, that's nice. So there you heard me talking to Michael Gallagher, author of Waking Up, A Guide for Transformation. As usual, I'm going to pull out some key points from that conversation. Michael explains that during his years as an addict... He mistook pleasure for happiness. He was chasing those chemical highs. And I think that's what we do when we drink. We sacrifice our long-term happiness for short-term pleasures. He managed to recover from his extreme life as an addict, only to then go on and develop a career in sales and become a functioning alcoholic in the corporate sector. We talked about just how damaging the work-hard-play-hard culture can be, And the fact that many corporates actually encourage it. And that the play hard bit always seems to involve alcohol. So building on his experience as a functioning alcoholic in a corporate, Michael now does amazing work. He encourages corporates to use mindfulness and meditation to increase their employees' well-being. Mindfulness and meditation instead of alcohol. This is such important work. And if you're in a corporate that's all about work hard and play hard, then do put them in touch with Michael. We also discuss the fact that happiness is about finding your purpose. It's about leading a life that is in line with your values. And in Michael's book, you'll find a whole chapter devoting to help you to discover what your true values are. So do get hold of this fascinating book, which is called Waking Up – a guide for transformation. Now, this podcast was recorded in early December. So if you'd like a bit of extra support to get you through the festive season, or if you simply want to sign up for a dry January, then please check out our annual fundraiser. In return for a small donation to a good cause, you'll receive 30 emails and be added to a WhatsApp group with the other challenges. Just hop on to worldwithoutwine.com and click on Earth Child Fundraiser and you'll find all the details. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Till next time. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please check out the World Without Wine subscription membership programme. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to change their relationship with alcohol. Whether you're looking to moderate or even quit drinking completely. Our eight-step program will help you succeed. We'll connect you with our warm and welcoming community. We'll put you on a 30-day alcohol-free challenge. And we'll track your progress on a monthly basis. And that's just for starters. For more information on the benefits of our membership program, just go to worldwithoutwine.com.